It's the Bits and Pieces podcast. Welcome everybody to Bits and Pieces <laughs> for August. My guest co-presenter this month is Lynn Dugan. And if you watched our podcast last week, you'll have seen Lynn on there. Very pleased to be here, chatting away. We enjoy a wee chat. We do. <laughs> Opinions are never in short supply. <laughs> we haven't got Holyrood or Westminster in session at the moment, but we do still have some clips of what we hope are interesting topics. Glasgow put on quite a performance didn't it, with the UCI championships. <laughs> <laughs> but not just Glasgow. I mean, Stirling had a huge part in it yes. as well. There was the mountain biking up in Inverness. And I think Glen Tress as well. There, there was events going on down there. It was good. Um, the country was shown off so well. The, the, the footage of it, the aerial views mm. of Scotland... It was great. It was really great to see it. People were watching it from elsewhere. They'd be looking going, what a fabulous country. What really struck me was how much the unionist press went into overdrive with complaining about the state of litter in Glasgow, cans left on trains. Can you not just have a day off? Let us enjoy something really, really good that's happening. Yes, Susan Aiken, who is the leader of Glasgow Council, had this to say. Glasgow is ready to feel the power of the bike. With the first ever combined world championships upon us, our city stands at the centre of the biggest cycling event in the world. For athletes, there will be chances to seize immortality and write their names into the history books as competitors, jersey winners and record breakers. For fans, another opportunity to enjoy a wonderful summer of sport and culture at inspiring venues. And for Glasgow the chance to keep making our great city a better and better place to get on your bike. Glasgow already has a globally renowned track record for delivering some of the world's biggest events, from the Commonwealth Games to COP26. And local communities and businesses have always played an invaluable role in that success. They make sure we are ready to present our best face to the world and they help secure a lasting legacy for Glasgow when the show's over. Bringing thousands of athletes, media and visitors to our doorstep will not only provide a welcome boost for our economy, but also help us become a healthier, happier and more sustainable city. Even before a pedal is turned and long after the last rainbow jersey is claimed, Glasgow is committed to making cycling accessible and inclusive, providing more opportunities for everyone to get on a bike. We are proud that this has been recognised by the UCI, naming Glasgow a UCI bike city, the first UK city to receive this accolade. So I hope you find time to discover more about our amazing community cycling projects and extensive active travel infrastructure, as well as reporting on the competitive action. Our Go Live programme of free cultural and community participation events across the city will ensure there are ways for everyone whether sports fans or not, to get involved, soak up the atmosphere and have some fun. Glasgow knows a thing or two about the sport, but perhaps even more about providing amazing support. So whether you're covering the event for the duration or just on loan to us for a few days, I know you'll experience an atmosphere like no other. Welcome to Glasgow. 
So that was Susan Aiken before the event. I mean, she was very positive about it, but I don't think she, even she would have realised just how good it was yeah. going to be. We saw the men's elite race because it came down towards the Clackmannanshire Bridge and we managed to go out and stand on the what we call the back road from Clackmannan to Kincardine. There's a bridge going over that. Obviously, like half of Clackmannanshire had had the same idea because that bridge was completely stowed out. And I was so excited because it was such a spectacle. And I thought, this is going to look great because I'm recording it mm-hmm. except I hadn't pushed the button to oh, record no. I was so upset <laughs> luckily our, our other roving reporter Neil <laughs> did manage to take yeah. it and if you want to see that if you look on Scottish Indie Pod Extra YouTube you'll see that clip of the cyclists and it is a beautiful shot of them sailing past when it comes to points when they're getting whatever their particular drink is part of the support team they've got their specific you know, uh, electrolytes or whatever they've got in their drink. So they've got to clock that person, get over to them. It looks and like not a, hit everybody like, else. It looks like a bit of a yeah. You're thinking for the people that are standing out there holding it, thinking, oh, you're putting yourself in danger. Yeah. You know, you could get hit by a bike. Yeah, you have your arm taken off. Molly lives in Glasgow, so she was able to attend quite a few of the different events. And she's recorded us a little clip of her impressions, so we'll hear that next. And I'm hoping that she's going to do a video of of these events as well, so we'll put that on our YouTube channel when she does it. But for now, this is Marlene's take. That was the start of a team sprint race held in the Sir Chris Hoy Velodrome here in Glasgow during the UCI World Cycling Championships, which ran not just in Glasgow, but all over Scotland. They were down in Dumfries, they were up in Fort William. Races started over in Edinburgh or in Stirling. Fantastic. It was like the Olympics, but just for cycling. I think there was something like 13 different cycling disciplines all competing, all in one big competition, all in Scotland. 360 with 30 seconds on the clock. I can't hear you, Glasgow! The commentators certainly got into it. That was in Glasgow Green. That was the BMX Park competition, you know, the one where they're up on ramps and going around walls. It was so exciting, absolutely incredible what they can do. This is actually the uh, UCI President's welcome message. 2023 UCI Cycling World Championships take place in Glasgow and across Scotland. 11 days of exceptional non-stop cycling action never before witnessed in our sport. That's because they've never brought all these individual disciplines together into one big event. And then he says, the beauty and diversity of our sport will be on show across the globe. And it wasn't just the best cyclists in the world that were on show. The beauty and diversity of Scotland were, were on show. Pictures were beamed out on TV across the world. Not so much in Scotland, I have to say. BBC Scotland didn't seem to be particularly bothered about saying much about it. I wouldn't say there wasn't anything on BBC Scotland. There was a bit. But there was an awful lot more that could have been there. I watched a lot of it on Eurosport, which is great. Not everyone's got access to Eurosport, I know. But a lot of people across the globe have got access to Eurosport. That was one of the main places that people would be watching it. One of the things that struck me was just how... Easy it is for folk 
I have to say it was Glaswegians. Some folk just seemed to go in a grump about it. I mean, I was speaking to one of my neighbours and she's saying, oh, very inconvenient. You can't get in and out in a bus. And I said, yeah, but think of the bigger picture, you know, it's this worldwide event. This is like the Commonwealth Games or the Olympics. It's huge. She says, yeah, I know, but it's very inconvenient. In case you're wondering, she used to actually support Scottish independence, so it wasn't like she was having a unionist grump about it, although there was plenty of examples of Scottish politicians getting grumpy about it all, I'll not name them, but suddenly all they could talk about was the fact that Glasgow streets needed tidied up. Well, it's true Glasgow streets could be tidier, but was that the only thing to say when you've got this massive event happening? And I saw this tweet, a woman who obviously lives up in Mary Hill someplace, and she tweeted, I'm absolutely fed up to the back teeth with this. I couldn't get my wee boy over to see his granny. I, I couldn't drive into Charing Cross and get out to the south side. And he hasn't seen his granny all week just because of all these blooming cyclists. <laughs> For various people, including me, went, because it was clear that she lived in Mary Hill and she had a car. So we went, well, you could just swing round the other way to Annie's land and go through the tunnel and there's no problem on the other side. There's no traffic. She just came back and said, well, I don't see why I should have to do that. Anyway, it's an example of how people can fail to see the bigger picture. And there was definitely a bigger picture. Marlene went to see, it's like synchronised gymnastics. Yes. That's like, what? <laughs> And then there was football on bikes as well. What an amazing thing. So hopefully she'll she'll have got some footage of that. For all those people who were grumping, saying it's really inconvenient, we can't get here, there and everywhere, there was a whole load of people who thought, I know how we can get there. We'll go on our bikes. Cycle, yeah. And they did do that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you could see the the cycle paths being used. And Yes, fabulous. So it was quite euphoric, I think. I mean, even for people who wouldn't normally, I wouldn't sit and watch cycling on telly, I have to say, but thoroughly enjoyed being at at real events and just watching the thing unfold. You're listening to Bits and Pieces. That was what was happening in Scotland, you know, open welcoming Scotland, come to our beautiful country, whereas down the road we had the ongoing catastrophe that is Westminster's treatment of refugees, asylum seekers, basically anybody that they don't think is Tory and white enough to be the, in the country. The othering that they like the to do. <laughs> Here is a report of the Bibby Stockholm, which you probably all remember is a big barge that Suella thought would be a terribly good idea to cram people in. Um, So here's what happened. The Bibby Stockholm is the enormous barge hired to house asylum seekers and ministers proudly announced the first 39 occupants moving in this week. But as we come on air tonight, the barge is being emptied and the asylum seekers being moved into alternative accommodation after potentially deadly Legionella was found in water on board. It's not known yet whether anyone has been infected but the Home Office claim nobody has presented with symptoms yet. Tonight, has a supposedly flagship Home Office policy turned into a pile of bacteria? I'm shocked, shocked and, and horrified that human beings can be endangered in, in this way. We, we were told that all of the checks were, were in place and that everything was supposed to be safe. I know from the letter that's been issued to those leaving the barge that it says the water sampling took place on the 25th of July. We know that the boarding of the barge started on the 7th of August. I've been told that the results were known on the 7th of August. Even if the results weren't known, why would you board the barge 
before the results of those health checks were known. We're making an enormous issue over this barge when actually the primary problem is trying to sort the asylum process where there's something like over yeah, 170,000 people. The Home Office had been trying to find space in Glasgow to dock and the council said, nope, just completely contrary to everything we try and do with welcoming refugees. It was regarded as a fire risk as well. It's just utterly horrific. Oh, it is. People on it who have already been through who knows what horrors yes. to get this yeah. far and yeah. they're treated as like that. It is horrifying. Obviously, we've got a variety of refugees in, in Scotland um, and I think back to the Henure Street where mm. the, the residents all went out and said, no, you're not, you're not taking our neighbours and we have uh, quite a few um, Ukrainian refugees and I, I volunteer at a club on a Sunday so all the Ukrainians can get together if they want to. And one of the girls there has recently been back to Ukraine because she hasn't seen her husband in over a year. So they managed to get back for about 10 days. But her husband had asked her, you know, if, if you have to stay in Scotland longer, where are you going to stay? And she said, well, Aloha. Because <laughs> I like it there because the people are nice and they're friendly. And we'd gone out for a coffee one day and a little walk uh, just into a, a local cafe, the Makers in Aloha. And... Being Scotland, being Scotland, Clackman and Shire being Clackman and Shire, you know, I know three people that, that work there, so we're having a wee blether to them. And then we went out for a walk and we met more people and chatted to them. And she was saying, it's not like this in Ukraine. In Ukraine, you have your small group of friends and you would know your work colleagues, but that's really it. She said, here... Everybody seems to know everybody, and, and everybody if you talks to everybody. Don't, don't know them. <laughs> yeah, and it's just I think that you know they see the, the difference in the in the culture there. Yeah. They've been going to classes to to improve their English, but I'm thinking up here in Scotland that they're learning words like scunnard. And, <laughs> and I did laugh when she said her ghost had taken her along to the the beer festival in Alloa. She said, "So I learned the word pished." <laughs> Indie Truck Davy had a really really good takedown of the right-wing gammon press, as he refers to them. The right-wing gammon media trying to tell us all that there's a rush of migrants coming across the channel to the shores of that there, England. Now, the gammon press will have us believe that there is a rush of these people. I've got a wee newsflash for you folks. Beyond that headline there that says rush of migrants crossing takes channel total past 100,000. It's a misleading headline. When you get into the article, you'll realise 100,000 people have now crossed that channel since 2018. So 20,000 a year. David decided to have a look and see how many people died in England and Wales since 2018. Deaths registered in England and Wales 2017-2018 was 541,589. Roughly half a million people a year in England and Wales. But here we have the Gammon Press make you believe there's no room for an additional 20,000 people a year in England and Wales. Remember, that 100,000 on the Times headline there is the amount of people who have come across in small boats since the return agreement we had when we were in the EU came to an end. So since 2018, when we could no longer send people to cross the channel uh, uh, illegally back to France under the Dublin arrangement, 
There's been 100,000 people made it across the channel into that there, England. That's 20,000 a year. And here we have the Gavin Press telling the people of England and Wales to hate these people, fleeing persecution, war, famine, to hate these people. This is the same right-wing Gavin Press who 10 years ago had his hating the disabled and had his hating the unemployed. Remember, benefit state, poverty poor. It's the same right-wing gammon people. It's called divide and rule. Oh, look, it's not the corporate giant who's a greedy bugger and didn't pay any taxes, folk. They're not like ones in the state or the corrupt corporate sponsored MPs that are the problem or the tax havens where the 1% down that road who don't pay tax keep their money. No, they are not the problem. It's 20,000 people fleeing war and persecution per year coming to our shores that are the problem. Deaths registered in England and Wales in 2018 was 541,589. So, since 2018, 20,000 people a year have come across that channel. Where's the pigeon? We have millions of people short in our, our population in Scotland. You don't want to cope with 20,000 people in England and Wales. Senator, here's the, the hundred a day that comes after they vote. We have plenty of time. Here's the power to process them. We've got an aging demographic up here. And we've got problems in our labour market because these idiots doing that road voting for Brexit. So I welcome refugees. Scotland welcomes refugees. The majority of the population welcome refugees, or they would, if it wasn't for the fact that there is a great wing gammon media press doing that road who are pushing a narrative rather than holding truth to power. We're just screaming the times for this corrupt Westminster administration to process these people. There's 200,000 people waiting, apparently. They didn't all come across the channel, obviously. Because the Times is reporting that in five years, 100,000 people crossed that channel. Five years. We have got a huge gap in our labour markets. A million EU citizens buggered off after the Brexit vote. 1.5 million young, educated, skilled, indigenous people of Scotland, England and Wales have fled Brexit Ireland since the Brexit vote. But here we have the right-wing gammon press telling us to hate 20,000 people a year fleeing war, persecution, famine. And these wars were probably started by the bankers here in the way wanting to control of these nations' assets. Back well, we 200,000. So that means 100,000 of these people come in for other routes than across that channel. Small boats, barges to pick people on. Concentration camps and old military facilities. Why not just process them? They're young, they're fit, they're capable, most of them are educated. Most of them at some point have had money, otherwise they wouldn't have made it this far. Just process them and put them to work. They want to contribute to society. But here we have a right-wing media and corrupt politicians telling us that 20,000 people a year come across the channel with a problem. That is a problem. These people are putting their lives at risk for no reason whatsoever. And if you want to blame anything for the 20,000 people a year coming across that channel since 2018 when the Dublin Agreement came to an end, then blame the people of England and Wales who voted for Brexit. Really interesting. When you get people that do the wee bit of research and say, right, okay, you have got the headline which is misleading. You're thinking it's 100,000 a year. It's not that since 2018, 20,000 a year. Many people have died. 
over half a million. So that 20,000 is a tiny percentage of that, you know. I don't know how many people were born, but the people that were born are not actually ready to work yet. They've got a good few years to grow and develop and get the skills. They want to work. I mean, I've certainly seen that from the the, the Syrians and the Ukrainians in Alawa. They all want to work. They all want to contribute. You want to to feel valued. For one, it's good for your mental health. They're they're dealing with the trauma of leaving war-torn countries, leaving family behind, and potentially having lost family as well. And they they want to come here and and integrate and, and make the best of a bad, situation that they've not caused that bad situation and he's got to the kind of crux of the matter it's about other people wanting to control the assets of these countries mm. that are causing the, the problems there it's, yeah. it's it's down to greed and when i you know when why we're we looking for independence because we want to do things differently yeah let us process people let us take them and let us say yes you can work we're happy to have you work if you're coming over if you're a nurse if you're a doctor to say our NHS has been depleted because all the EU nationals have gone back because it was such a hostile mm-hmm. environment. I'd spoken to a friend recently and talking about independence and she said, you know, it's not about any political party for me now. It's about ethics yeah. and the difference in the governance from Westminster and the governance in, in Scotland. And yeah. Scotland are, are far more ties in with our ethics. We want everybody to be well and healthy and happy. And that's what we're aiming for. But we're constrained by Westminster. Yeah. You can't do this, you can't do that. Who are, who are equally constrained by the 1% who own the newspapers, yes. don't pay tax here. So that was Davy, And then coincidentally, we also had a clip of Hugh Grant, who was on some American TV show. I don't know which one it was. With power comes responsibility. Yeah. And in Britain, it is a kind of uniquely UK problem. Yeah. Uh, there's no responsibility. And these big newspaper owners, largely non-taxpaying newspaper owners, yeah. are living above the law and invading the, the, the privacy of people whose kids have been killed in a road accident or whatever yeah. to get the sensational article. And no one dares to take them on in Britain because they're so scared of them, yeah. especially the politicians. And that's why politicians really, in my country, are chosen by the press. Our prime minister is largely chosen by dint of how much he's sucked up to, to the newspaper barons. So that's what my campaign is, is yeah. about. Do you think that Brexit has ruined your country? <laughs> well, I do. <laughs> and then staying with the um, the media, you would be forgiven for thinking the BBC Scotland is at war with Scotland, in my opinion. They're not serving the interests of the half of the country that's interested in independence. We've got two clips. One is how the BBC reported the junior doctor's pay settlement, and the other is how STV reported it. And if anybody um, saw our podcast with John Robertson a couple of weeks ago about media politics, he did say that he thought STV was or considerably more balanced than the BBC, and that you know they're maybe starting to realise that there is actually an economic reason for them to serve the whole country rather than just half of it. First clips, BBC... Junior doctors here have voted to accept a pay deal that will see them earn an additional 17% over two years. The increase will cost more than £60 million. Scotland is now the only part of the UK to have avoided strike action by NHS workers. So that was the BBC, 15 seconds, and that included a complaint about how much it was going to cost. (laughs) Did you notice? (laughs) This is STV. 
Now, junior doctors in Scotland have voted overwhelmingly to accept a new pay deal. They'll get a 12.4% increase this year and pay rises in line with inflation over the next three years. The Health Secretary welcomed the vote and says it means Scotland remains the only part of the UK where there have been no strikes in the NHS. Well, our political editor Colin Mackay has been following this story. So Colin, how convincing was the vote? Very convincing. 81% support among junior doctors and a turnout in this ballot of 71%. As you say, 12.4% pay rise is what they're going to get this year. The Scottish Government says that will cost £61 million. That will come out of the existing health budget. It's the biggest pay rise for doctors in, in over 20 years. And all this comes as junior doctors in England are going back to work after four days of being on strike. The fifth time they've been on strike. There, there are no negotiations going going on between the UK government and unions, and that's in stark contrast to this deal today. The fact that the Scottish Government recognised our strike mandate and sat down with us to negotiate shows that they understood the gravity of the situation. The government in Westminster haven't done that with our colleagues in England, who we support wholeheartedly with their cause. The fact that there's been no strikes in Scotland does mean that it's been patients that have benefited, and I hope that we can continue in that vein. But strikes aren't off the table if the government don't live up to their commitments. So a warning there that having discovered their militant streak, junior doctors could return to the threat of strike action. But today, junior doctors will be relieved. Patients will be relieved as well. Because if you look at what's happened in England because of the NHS strikes, more than 780,000 hospital appointments have been cancelled just this year. Someone else who's going to be incredibly relieved about all this is the Scottish Health Secretary, Michael Matheson. This will not only see a significant increase in pay for junior doctors, but it will also reform the way in which we deal with future pay issues for junior doctors and the way in which their contract operates. And it will ensure that NHS Scotland is the most attractive part of the NHS in the whole of the UK for junior doctors to come and work. But alongside that, it also takes away the risk of industrial action. And good that the doctors themselves recognise that the governance here is different and they're treating them like adults and going, you know, you are part of the system, you're what's make, making it work. Whereas down south, it's apparent they want to destroy the NHS. Yeah. Because then they can sell it off and it will be shareholders that make money as opposed to everybody benefiting from it. You'll get checked before you go into hospital. It's like, can you prove you've got enough insurance to cover this? Yeah. Which is just utterly horrific. There's no, there is no need for it. A government that creates its own currency can fund what it wants to fund. It's just choosing not to fund it. And more and more people need to realise that is how they are operating. It's in their gift to go to the Bank of England and say, this is what how much money we want, this is what we're going to do with it, and do it. They don't and have to pick austerity, but they've chosen to do that. And investing in the health of your people as well saves you money in the long run because they're able to work they're decent able to food buy things you yeah. know exactly it and they're not draining your your yeah. benefit system for paying them sick pay they're not getting yes i mean if you look at food across the globe there's enough food to feed everybody on this planet it's to do with the logistics of getting things yeah. out to places so in africa you've got people starving in america you've got an obesity uh, problem but it's because of poor quality Food. They're buying things that are stuffed with sugar and yeah. fat and preservatives. Back down to greed thing again. Yeah. Oh, we're getting ourselves right riled up. <laughs> yes. We'll be hitting the streets with a placard yeah. shortly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
You're listening to Bits and Pieces. We're now going to move on to Jers Week. Richard Murphy, who is very, very good explaining just why Jers is a complete fiction designed to hide our wealth. It's Jers Day, the day when the Scottish Government publishes the Government Expenditure and Revenue Scotland Statement, which supposedly shows the financial situation of government in Scotland, except for one incredibly important thing, which is that it doesn't do that, because there is no organisation that exists that is anything like responsible for the figures that are included in the JER statement. Figures in that statement include those of the Scottish Government, but it balances its books because it has to. The JER statement includes the figures for local authorities in Scotland, but they balance their books because they have to. The figures include the supposed impact of the revenue and expenditure of the UK government for Scotland, and overall JERS records a very large deficit, depending upon the view that you want to take between 19 billion and 28 billion. So who is it who can be responsible for that deficit if the Scottish government and Scottish local authorities aren't? Well, it has to be the government in Westminster. That is the only possible answer. What JERS shows this year more clearly than ever is that the UK government is dumping costs on Scotland, has no idea how to control them, has no one, including the Secretary of State for Scotland, who is accountable for them, and as a result is making a complete mess of its Scottish affairs. That's what JERS says, that's what it's about, and the answer is very clearly, get rid of the influence of the government in Westminster on the affairs of Scotland. And what's interesting is Richard Murphy is an English mm-hmm. professor, and so he is pointing out you know, how rubbish yeah. their governance is down south, how they're, the way they're manipulating figures to make Scotland look like it's absolutely dreadful and dire and we can't survive without mm-hmm. England. Whereas the opposite is the, is the truth of that. English governance is a huge like block of concrete tied to our ankles, yeah. um, weighing us down. We know we're onto them now. But I, I do hope that with having a, a, a Minister of Wellbeing Economy in place, that we might finally get from the Scottish Government an independence you know, here's what the estimates are likely to be in an independent Scotland, because not only does that mean people can actually compare one with the other, but it starts to put in place some of the counting that we're going to need to do. We know that quite a few of, of our SNP MPs are not going to be standing again, despite it being reported in the papers of people like Philippa Whitford stepping down, or, well, she's actually retiring, yeah. <laughs> like normal people do. <laughs> um, but I will miss Philippa because she's so eloquent, and we're going to have a clip from her in just a second. But first, Mary Black, she really is going to be a loss to the whole house, actually, and it, it really should be a wake-up call if people like her are finding that they... They just don't want to be part of it. But you can also understand, she's a young woman. Mm. She has dedicated her early life when other people are having their families, etc. All of that has gone on hold while she's been 
doing this and doing it really well. I have to say, when she stands up and speaks and you listen to her, she just rings true with everything. She just calls off any BS that they try to put out there. She's great at coming back with wee put-downs that are humorous, but they make the point. Sometimes you look at Westminster and you think, this is like a high school debating club mm. and it's all yaboo sucks to you. And it's just, ah, I get so angry when I think, you're the people running the country. Take it seriously. Stop trying to get one over each other. What you're doing impacts on everybody's life mm. in this country. How dare you? Yeah. You know, you're getting paid a ton of money and you're just behaving like a schoolboy. In yeah. fact, schoolboys might be better at doing it, as long as they don't come from eating. Um, <laughs> and they're getting in the way of what we want to do with our country yes, as well. Yeah. Well, the first clip is one it's been all around social media, so you, probably anybody listening to this has seen it, but it was too good um, to miss out. <laughs> and it's the, the mystery that is Oliver Dowden. How on earth he became <laughs> Deputy Prime Minister is beyond me. You just begin by saying... Genuinely, how sorry I was to hear that the Honourable Lady will be standing down at the next election. She and I joined this House at the same time, and I know she has contributed much to her party and to this place. And may I also say, I'm sure she will wish to join me in celebrating His Majesty King Charles receiving the Scottish regalia pretty much as we speak. There's, there's always time for a Damascan conversion, Mr Speaker. <laughs> the, the Deputy Prime Minister, I thank him for his kind words and we did join this place at the same time and I'm pretty sure we'll be leaving at the same time. <laughs> it's just a shame that on a podcast you can't see her face. <laughs> yes. Philippa Whitford is the other one we mentioned there. A couple of weeks ago we had a podcast which was Philippa talking about Scotland donation for the group Yes for EU and you'll get that on our all our various channels if you want to listen to it. But this is a little clip from it and it, I think it's the clearest explanation in the debate about EU or EFTA. There's basically three key relationships with Europe that we could have. And we'll often hear people proposing EFTA the European Free Trade Association, which only contains four countries, Norway, Iceland, Liechtenstein and Switzerland. But because it's only four countries, EFTA on its own doesn't actually solve any of our Brexit problems at all. So what people mostly mean when they say, why don't we just join EFTA, is they mean EFTA and the EEA. And therefore, the European Free Trade countries but those that are also in the single market. So that's the three, but not including Switzerland. And the thing is that that brings us back into the single market, but not into the customs union. So we would still have customs borders with all the other EU countries and have regulatory borders with the rest of the UK. And that doesn't seem to me ideal. In particular, with the democratic deficit that we face at the moment, if we were only in the single market as part of EFTA, we become a rule taker. We're not at the top table. We don't contribute to the debate and we don't have a vote. And the other thing that is often overlooked is that because all the EU states are in the EEA, all of them have to agree to a new member joining. So the idea that this is something, oh, it would only take a month and we'd be in, this is just not the case. And it actually involves a significant amount of administration to write an independent Scotland into all 
the EFTA EEA paperwork and agreements. So for people who talk about, oh, well, we'll go into that for a few years and then we can move on to the EU. A, that doesn't show commitment to the EU. It looks like we're half-hearted. And after the behaviour of the UK over many years, and particularly through Brexit, that's certainly not something that the EU wants, is another half-hearted, non-committed European country. So for us, it would not show good faith. But equally, we'd be asking them a few years later to unpick the work they'd done to bring us into the single market through the EFTA-EEA and ask them to redo a new set of administration to actually make us full EU members. That's pretty clear, isn't it? Definitely. And I know there are still a few people around still advocating what they, when they say EFTA, she says what they really mean is the EEA, and it's got all the issues that go with that. Now, why they're still going down that route, why they haven't grasped those, I don't know. It's like magical thinking. Unless they think there was an, okay, Scotland voted, what, 62% for remaining in the EU, so presumably 30% not. And maybe they're thinking, well, if it's been mooted as a halfway house, then maybe that 30% might actually come over. But as as Philippa says, it doesn't really show the commitment to it. And doesn't give you any control either. Yes. Yeah, you're in, but you've not got a say. Oh, that just sounds a bit like the union we're in just now. (laughs) We're in it, but we don't have a say. (laughs) And then just to follow on, we've got um, Gordon McIntyre-Kemp, who also has been recently in a a podcast of ours. He has a slightly different reason, but comes to the same conclusions. I find it really easy to explain to people why we should rejoin the EU rather than EFTA. What I do is I say to them, go knock five or six doors, knock on the door and say you want to join EFTA and see what happens. By the time you hit the sixth door, you're going, we're going to rejoin the EU because people understand that. But also, it is the better option, much, much stronger. EFTA could well be a plan B. But it isn't the right option for Scotland. And then just to round up the discussion on EU and EFTA, let's see what Keir Starmer, possibly our future Prime Minister, has to say about it. It is demonstrably clear from economic data that Brexit has been damaging to the UK economy. Why do you support us continuing to stay outside the EU? We took a decision on leaving the EU in 2016 and we have now left. There is no case for returning to the EU. I mean, good luck with that in Scotland. I mean, it's just absolutely tone deaf. And there is no reason given there. It's just because I say so. But yeah, there's no acknowledgement that it's been a resounding disaster. Do you know what, mate? If you're going to be the new Prime Minister, well, then you can change things. That's yeah. the whole point of it. You're listening to Bits and Pieces. This actually comes from a podcast called Hollywood Sources. It's quite a new podcast. You'll get it in all the usual places. They got Hamza Youssef as a guest. And he was pushed on, do we have an, an economic strategy and an energy policy? And this is a clip from his response. The problem for me is the SNP's presumption against oil and gas exploration feels like a presumption against my career. Uh, my livelihood and my ability to put food at my family's uh, table. Uh, are the SNP going to address that in their upcoming policy interventions? So we'll address it, and I've said really clearly to people that when it comes to decisions about future oil and gas licences, 
I think it's right that we start from the position of saying, look, we need to be convinced about why they should go uh, ahead because we are facing a climate emergency. It's not just the, the carbon footprint of actually extracting that oil and gas, but then what happens in relation to its usage. So I think we're right to, to question that and start from that position. But there's three things I think that need to be factored in. One is our climate obligations. You know, We need to try to keep 1.5 degrees alive. If we don't keep that alive, then the planet is literally facing an existential threat. But secondly, it has to be workers. I mean, we cannot do, we should never be forgiven if we do to the northeast what Thatcher did to mining and steel communities right across the country. We should never be forgiven if that's what we do. We're not going to do that. So trying to accelerate that just transition, hence why one of my first announcements as First Minister was an additional £25 million, uh, towards that just transition is really important. And then energy security, I think, is hugely important, not just domestically, but internationally too. Uh, when I was in Europe uh, recently in, in, in Brussels, the number one issue they wanted to talk to me about uh, continually was how Scotland can help to provide a solution to the energy challenge they're facing. They're desperately keen, Europe, of course, to get off foreign imports of gas, uh, Russian gas in particular. And Scotland has the ability to, to, to play a massive role, I think, in that. So workers absolutely are going to be at the heart uh, of that. But I don't think it's wrong to start from a position of saying, actually, look, we need convincing. Uh, and, and certainly I don't support Rishi Sunak coming up and saying 100 new licences uh, should be granted. We often talk about sides in that debate. You know, you're on the side of hydrocarbons or you're on the side of the renewables. The reality of that debate is that without the profits of hydrocarbons, oh, oil and there is no future renewables industry. And if you articulated that very strongly and very clearly, a lot of people would come with you on that. Because yeah, it's very absolutely. understandable and it's also true. Uh, yes. And I think that's the sort of thing that could really, you know, be the Humza vision, which we haven't heard before. Yeah, I think there has definitely got to be a discussion about transition and the pace of that transition. Right? I, I want to accelerate that transition and that pace. So I hear what you and Jeff have to say. The slight counter to that, and some of where some of my concern uh, comes in is, look, oil and gas is lucrative, far more lucrative in terms of a commodity. Yeah. Yeah, 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 you yeah, just yeah. see that from the prices uh, in relation to, 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 to renewables as things stand. And therefore, if there's a decision for a supply chain worker to either, or supply chain, supply chain company to go to oil and gas or to go to renewables, many of them will go to oil and gas. My concern is that if we don't shift that balance, then we end up that supply chain being uh, completely focused on oil and gas, where we need to make pace with infrastructure and renewable. But there's your jobs boom. You know, if you think about it, with the profits of oil and gas, but, but I think we're thinking this is binary things. I think Andy's touched on it there. You know, everyone thinks about big oil, Shell, Equinor. But it's the supply chains that support them that are so critical. They're the ones that are so critical. So they can have the best of both worlds. Come up here and not get the benefit. Not, not, not when they have a workforce but, shortage, but, but, uh, the size and scale. So, if I had immigration so, so, powers, so, so right we could now, absolutely incentivize right now, them. So right now we have a problem with a working age population. We can't attract people to our country. I tell you what would attract them. High value jobs in an energy sector underpinned by oil and gas profits as you transition to renewables. That's my point about a growth strategy. Interesting what they're, they're saying when you look at, I mean, recently there was a, the, um, the climate camp Scotland at yeah. Keneal. What they say about, you know, we keep saying, well, we for Scotland, we could be self-sustaining because we have this oil and gas. However, at the moment, like Ineos is Jim Ratcliffe, its profits are going into his pocket. 80% of the oil and gas that they extract is sold on the free market. Mm. It's not being used in Scotland. Now, that's wrong. We and shouldn't be getting energy from anywhere 
else when, when you look at some of the stuff where the, down south where they're saying well we don't we don't want wind farms the NIMBY crowd not mm. in my backyard there's vast swathes of Scotland a... that they can put it in but we'll not do it there but we'll trash Scotland how stupid are we when we've got this huge big ball up there you know we've got the environment and all this creating heat that we can use to generate energy that we need or wind that we can use yet we're pulling oil out the ground and gas out the Very ground mean. and meanwhile and, the planet's on fire i mean look at yes, the pictures yeah. that are coming out of was it Sesame? Maui in Hawaii. Yeah. The first race that's going to like make itself extinct because the solution wasn't cost-effective. <laughs> that's right. And then you've got these protesting against low emission zones in cities. They're actually protesting for the right to keep pumping poison into their cities that's going to kill the environment. Poison and and give kids ill health. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I just despair of people sometimes. I know, it's hard trying to... You, you think, well, you've got to balance when you do things, so you've got to improve the infrastructure. But again, if we're not an independent country, we're not a currency creator, we're reliant on Westminster mm. going, here's a few pennies. Yeah, you can do what we tell you with these few pennies yeah. and nothing else. When we're going, but we've got all these plans. This is what we want to do. When you look at other European nations, when you go to them and how their infrastructure is and how easy it is to get about on public mm. transport, there's so many things that we could do in Scotland that would improve the lives of everybody. Mm. Um, and, and you know, it's it's not just. What it's not one thing that's going to be changed that'll work, it's a whole lot of things, and we have to see how things are interrelated, you know. And the thing is, we know we can do it, we've got the desire to do it, yeah. it's just well, we haven't got the control oh, yes. that we need to yes. do it, isn't it? Ian Blackford produced a I think he called it a route map or a roadmap recently, it got a tiny bit of coverage, almost none, and yet there was some quite hopeful stuff in it so I don't know what the status of that is we'll perhaps find out once um, Hollywood gets back in session I think what we need to do is actually show people we have a proper roadmap and of course oil and gas is an important part of the the mix over the course of the short to medium term what we need to do I think what we need to do is look at the demand side of things and we need to look at how we ramp up green energy production I mean I've talked about that five-fold increase by 2050 if we can if we can decarbonize our economy we will reduce our, our, our dependency on oil and gas and that's really the question that we need to ask and then it's a question of what is the outturn in oil and gas production we need to make sure that we transition effectively we've got a lot of jobs in oil and gas 70 odd thousand in the energy report that I published last year, we talked about getting to 325,000 jobs in green energy. So it's about that transition and how we actually, over that journey, we reduce our dependency in oil, but it remains a key part of the mix over, over the short to medium term. Look, at the end of the day, I think there's a, there is that question about what happened to the bounty from North Sea Oil. There was 350 billion of tax receipts and where has it gone? What we're trying to do in this paper is to make sure that we can deliver that sustainable economic growth in Scotland, that we can get the investment, we can drive up productivity, we can get the tax receipts. And I think through that, 
give confidence to people in Scotland that we have got the vision as to what an economy of an independent Scotland will look like. You know, in some respects, I would turn this around and say, where is the industrial strategy for the UK? It doesn't exist. Here is an effective plan, and it's multifaceted. You can talk about offshore wind. I want to see a plan for tidal, for example, and I'm calling on the UK government because it has reserved powers to make sure we support that industry. Let's get the investment in carbon capture and storage. You know, one of the things, I talked about, if I may just briefly, in academia, we bring lots of students over to Scotland. We train them, we educate them, and then we ask them to go home. That's clearly insanity. We would need to make sure that we've got the talent that can help drive our economy and we need to have an effective post-study work visa. So there's so many things that we can do, take the right decisions that will allow us to deliver economic growth. So still talking about economic growth. So I'm just a bit curious as to what happened to the wellbeing economy that was so much in evidence in the leadership debates. Um, it might just be that because the, the question was specific to the energy sector that it, it wasn't relevant, but it's something I just, you know, pricked my ears up a bit. And I think they say, yeah, there's a fear. If you look at the what, what they said, we've got 70,000 working in the oil and gas industry. However, they're projecting over 300,000 to work in renewables. And presumably those in the oil and gas already will have skills and knowledge that they can bring. There'll be, there'll be engineers, etc. That mm. you know They're not going to be like, oh, bend, sorry, we don't want you anymore. They're going to have skills that can transition over, transferable skills. I haven't heard that um, before now. And it's almost when somebody who speaks well and can make a reasonable case, it's like, oh, well, we better not put this out because people might hear it and people might go, oh, that actually sounds like a sensible plan. I think we do have um, a link to Ian Blackford's paper, so I'll put it in the notes. Back to Gordon McIntyre-Kemp. He was talking about the well-being economy and has got quite a good explanation of what we mean by that I think but also the impact it would have on the polls and I would hope that that doesn't get forgotten in, in all this talk of economic growth because it does make a difference. We did this piece of work we did it in England and in Scotland uh, in September 2020 looking at uh, public attitudes to to well-being economics in Scotland and everything I'm going to tell you tonight even though it's from 2020 holds true in every piece of research since. We identified 21 values, and of those values, one of the overall statements, and it's actually, if you think about it, a fairly radical statement, because this is not the way we run our economy right now. We asked people, quality of life, equality, fairness, and happiness, and health are all economic outcomes that should be given equal weight in planning to GDP growth, right? So we thought, that's a fairly radical statement. Who's going to go for that? And we found there's a 78% majority of people said, yeah, I believe in that statement. Now, right there, you can instantaneously tell that that does not describe the mantra of the UK's economic system, does it? So the economic system of the UK does not match the core values of the people of the UK. I'm not going to go into detail. However, you didn't get results like this at 78% when we surveyed people in England. They're the undecided are there uh, as well. So we haven't taken them out in any of these figures. So you can, uh, you can take that to 86 uh, percent if you take the undecided out. So basically, there's a mismatch between values and economy. And if you break it down, it's not just SNP and, and maybe Labour that you might think. Uh, right across the board, there are majorities. The Conservatives, even at 52%, there was a majority, even with the undecided left in, there was a majority of Conservatives agreed with these sort of statements. So we did a bit of work. 
in 2017 where I tried to actually understand what is the well-being economy. We'd mapped out what the values were. We then looked at the different things that we might be able to measure in different countries. And I started a bit of work to compare Denmark, which at the time was the happiest nation in the world, uh, with the UK. But also Denmark is uh, one of the, the closest two or three nations to Scotland geographically with the same population. Uh, you know, the others are, are Finland, Ireland and Norway. So I looked at Denmark and... If you assume that if you're calculating all the different things that, that have to be given the same prominence in your policy making as GDP, Denmark beats the UK on almost everything except sustainability and natural resources. Guess what happens if Scotland leaves the UK? You cannot grow an economy in a sustainable manner unless you have all the factors of society and the economy working together. You cannot have a strong society without a strong economy, and you cannot have a strong economy without a strong society. The two sides of the same coin. It's a holistic solution, not a left and right, or even a liberal middle do nothing sort of solution. It's a left and right in harmony, because every single one of you holds, even if you classify yourself as a socialist, you hold right-wing ideas on business and economy, Simultaneously, as you hold socialist ideas and society in your head, our research says that everyone thinks that way, and yet politicians try to put us in a box to force us to vote for them rather than other people. You need the best ideas of both to be simultaneously in order. What if that's the only way you can actually sustainably grow economy? To actually have a society that's thriving, which means you can't just have business policies. We asked those people, it was panel-based, did the survey for us, uh, should Scotland be an independent country? 48%. Same people, we asked them, there was a referendum tomorrow and the Scottish Government had put as the main economic case a well-being approach that gave equal precedence and decision-making to well-being, health, happiness, sustainability, uh, as it does to GDP. How would you vote? And it jumps to 56%. These are the same people reading one sentence. The key thing that people say to us is, but that's not what the SNP are telling us independence is all about. Why aren't they saying that? Well, they are. They've just changed the economy minister to the well-being economy minister, and they're saying exactly this, right? And they're talking to us almost every day. So you get an 8% uplift in support for independence just by saying, and we're going to have a well-being economy. So we said Scottish independence with a well-being economic approach and a well-being pension of two to five a week, and we get 60% yes. The same people that were 48%. The minute you explain these things to them, they switch. And the point being is, it's not being explained to people. And again, it's how do we get the, the coverage to get that information out to people, to let them see, look, this is what we're aiming for. Exactly. And even in those two earlier clips where you've got Humza Yousaf, has got a platform on that podcast, Ian Blackford was talking on some TV programme. Neither of them mentioned the other side of the coin. That's what worries me a little. You know, it's great that, that Neil Gray has got well-being in his title, but it can't be pigeonholed into a title. It has to be, this is how we do it. It's the, the holistic approach that people need to see. This is not just a, a one standalone thing. Actually, this is the umbrella in, in order to deliver our well-being economy. We need to have a happy society, a healthy society, a productive society. We can do things sustainably. Economic growth. I get to the point where I think, well, 
what do we actually need to grow anymore yeah. economically? You know, have we not got enough? Actually, that's it. Yeah. There's finite resources. Because that was one thing that Gordon McIntyre came didn't mention in there where he was talking about it and talking about and if Scotland was to be independent, that actually Scotland has the resources. I did, I did think he, say, he said compared to Denmark, yes, we've got more mm. resources than them. And that's hugely important. Yes. People seem to forget that. The actual resources we have, what they would say is, oh, we're, we're going away from oil, so you can't rely on oil mm. anymore. As it is, 80% of our oil and gas is sold off. However, we have water, we have the ability, you know, tidal, all, all the ability to do all the renewables. And I hope that we're allowed to do it in time before we have other people like the Americans coming in for the oil industry and taking over. Yeah. We'll do it for you and they'll make the profits and it will go out of Scotland and it needs to stay in Scotland mm-hmm. so that we can manage it, that we can reinvest, that we can look after the people. There, there are things happening in different parts of the of the country. I think it's one of the tenants breweries in Glasgow actually where it takes about four pints of water to make a pint of beer but there's a lot of heat in that process but the, the heat generated from that is used in local housing estates to heat them so they're not paying you know but it's like why would you waste this yeah. it can be reused so interesting to see what <laughs> what comes up. I've got high hopes from uh, Hollywood being back and just to see what comes up. And I would like to see one of these ScotGov positioning papers because the one that came out on the economy was quite woolly, I think. I don't think they've convinced themselves in the Scottish government. I don't think they're clear enough yet. You're listening to Bits and Pieces. We were at the All Under One Banner March in Ayr recently, and of all the speakers, I thought Corrie Wilson gave a very good speech. She's local to there, and she was able to bring in a bit of history to things that had happened just down the road from where we were standing. Today, I stand before you with a passion in my heart and an unwavering conviction for the future of Scotland. Our nation's history is intertwined with tales of valour, resilience, unyielding spirit and struggles that has defined us for centuries. From Robert the Bruce convening the first Scottish Parliament only two streets away over there in 1315 to settle the succession of the Crown to the signing of the Articles of the Union in 1706, exactly 317 years ago last week, our ancestors have fought fiercely for the autonomy and independence that we must now reclaim. Let us take a moment to remember the brave souls who've dared to envision a united Scotland, coming together under the banner of freedom and shared values. Those we have lost over the last few years who never saw their dream becoming reality, like the wonderful Winnie Ewing who blazed a trail for us all. And locally, Isabel Wallace, Nan and Angus McFarlane, Chick Brodie, Tommy O'Lone, and sadly, too many others, too many to mention, who've all given a lifetime of activism. But as we reflect on the past, we must also confront the present. Our voices are stifled, and our destiny is entangled in a union that does not serve our best interests. So very passionate there and and obviously making the the link between the 
historical events that, that took place there. Again, my usual reminder that uh, this podcast is not tied to any political party. We just comment on anything we think is of interest. Yeah, the one point she made there is about the idea of Scotland United. Now, I kind of get where the smaller parties in particular, there's something in it for them. I, I really worry about splitting the independence vote and we'll find out in Rutherglen if that happens and if so, what's the, yeah. the impact. But equally, I can kind of think, why would the biggest party go for that? Because essentially it means them not standing to let somebody else in a different party stand. Well, I mean, the numbers that they're polling, they're not going to get in. No. <laughs> they're just no. not going to get in. So I can't see any way that a Scotland United approach is ever going to be agreed but equally I kind of think we're all on the same side and if all these parties would just stop taking pot shots at each other yeah. and start aiming their weapons at Westminster that's keeping us in this union then we'd all be a bit better off oh, that's one thing that unionists are relying on let's keep it's the divide and conquer Absolutely, isn't it yeah. so they've got little areas that are fractioned off for whatever reasons they've decided. I, I totally get people's frustration at things not moving fast enough. I'm frustrated at when when you start looking at it and you see how badly Scotland is treated, yeah. basically abused. We are. We're in a, an abusive relationship. And I feel frustrated that we can't get out of it. And then I know other people who actually voted in the last referendum in 1979 and are still fighting for their independence. And I think, well, I've got a cheek to feel frustrated because they've been doing it an awful lot longer than me. We just have to keep at it. We're chipping away, we're chipping away. If you look at the way that the unionist parties in Scotland blatantly, tactically vote... So they just they'll pile in on whichever one they think's got the best chance of getting in. Doesn't matter whether they're Labour or Tory or anything, they'll vote for each other quite happily and then swear blind they're not doing it. The only reason that we've got anywhere in terms of having even the first referendum is because the SNP was one group and the unionists were fractured. So, you know, it does make you wonder just who is behind some of the fracturing that's happened and, and you know, how much of it is manufactured outside of Scotland. Yes, to be very interesting. Because England will definitely not benefit if Scotland leave mm. the union. We do need to be united and we need to go, look, let's just get across the line for independence and then we can decide how we want mm. to do it. But from the research that's been done and from the work that's been done, Gordon McIntyre Kemp was talking about it, the focus groups, regardless of people's political persuasions, they all want the same thing yeah. and there's just a different way of going about yeah. it. And we still get sold this. I mean, they were talking about, I think it was Davy and Truck earlier said about the, you know, the kind of the poverty porn and this kind of, oh, it's the blame these people, blame these people. Yeah. There's always somebody else to blame not the actual 1% who are wanting to maintain control over, over everything. And, make, and, and, yeah. and you keep thinking, well, you can have all this money, but at some point you can't eat money. And if you've destroyed the planet, you can't even use that money to buy things to eat because you've destroyed the planet. And you, that you know, money's going to burn like everybody else's. It's scorched yeah. earth. It's just horrific. It's It's nonsensical um, but, I mean, when you think about somebody like well Sunak takes Sunak a near billionaire 
What does he need that amount of money for? Why does he have a job? I mean, what what is the black hole in the yeah. pit of his soul? If, he's I, trying if, to I, if I if I was a billionaire, <laughs> I wouldn't have a job. I'd be doing things that I like. Well, doing, doing something of benefit, benefit to, to mankind. Yeah, well, that's it. And not just see, tossing another million on the pile. Well, an interesting discussion came out of Cory Russell <laughs> talking about something that happened in the 17th century. Mm-hmm. Um, Cory talked there a whole list of people who hadn't lived to see their dream of independence. We had a good friend who died recently, absolute stalwart of the independence movement, very widely known, and that was Irene Hamilton. We were at a service of what well, remembers a celebration yeah. of a life, a lovely service actually, really, really nicely done very very well attended and there was a poem read out i loved that poem and i think there's something for all of us in this so we'll end with the poem it is called dust if you must by rose milligan dust if you must but wouldn't it be better to paint a picture or write a letter bake a cake or plant a seed ponder the difference between want and need dust if you must but there's not much time with rivers to swim and mountains to climb, music to hear and books to read, friends to cherish and life to lead. Dust if you must, but the world's out there, with the sun in your eyes and the wind in your hair. A flutter of snow, a shower of rain, this day will not come around again. Dust if you must, but bear in mind, old age will come, and it's not kind. And when you go, and go you must, you, yourself, We'll make more dust. Cheers to our friend yes. Irene. Chin chin, here we go. So this podcast is going to go out this Friday. On Saturday, we will both be up in Sky. Yep. Uh, at the Ond One Banner Kailakin event. So if you can get there by tomorrow, <laughs> do so. And then on the 2nd of September, there is the 1st March organised by Believe in Scotland, along with Yes for EU. So that is shaping up to be a very interesting one. We just heard today that Brian Cox is also going to be speaking, and I presume we mean the actor, not the physicist, yes. on that one, <laughs> although both would be welcome. It does feel as if we're gearing up to hit the streets again. I'm looking forward to Sky. I think it'll be good, and it's the first time they've done a march in Sky. Yeah. And they're actually doing the march, so although the kind of gathering is in Kailakin, which is the south of Sky, just just as you go over the Sky Bridge, you actually start in the march in Kyle of Lochalsh mm. and it's coming over the Sky Bridge. Good. Look so fabulous. I think that will be quite a spectacle. Yeah. Um, I will attempt to um, either film or live stream that. And again, the, the Sky March, I believe the speakers include Ian Blackford, Kate Forbes, and I think Ash Regan as well. Well, that is our roundup of what happened in August. Um, that was a lot of fun thank yes. you very much oh, for joining me always enjoyable <laughs> and um, we'll be back again next Friday with another podcast and don't forget you can get any previous podcasts on our website scottishindipod.scot bye <laughs> you've been listening to Bits and Pieces I'm a piece of